What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Ben, and today we have Matt the Madman Frederick here with us as our super producer. The Madman. We should call him the Bagman. The Bagman. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah. cool. It makes it sound like kind of a heist crew. Yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah. That, okay, so just a quick backstory here. Uh, our super producer, Noel, is on the road today as we speak because he is playing a couple of shows at Nashville. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, good yeah. for him. Oh, uh, you know, he's a multi-instrumentalist when he's not recording with us. Nashville, wow. Mm-hmm. Big city. Yeah, big city. Uh, I was born there, right? So uh, mm-hmm. my, my, I left when I was eight, so my experiences are the things that were cool for eight-year-olds. But uh, <laughs> well, Okay, so I have to ask, what was cool for an eight-year-old in Nashville, uh, you know, 20 years ago? <laughs> uh, Grand Old Opry, for sure. All right. right? That was mm-hmm. a close amusement park. Sure. Uh, I remember being very into the creek behind our yard. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I always was trying to get into, uh, big rigs because I had this idea that I could, you know, own a semi and just live in it and drive around. At eight. At eight. At eight years old. At eight. Couldn't even reach the pedals. Oh, very cool. Okay, well, that makes sense. That makes sense for an eight-year-old to be interested in exactly what you laid out there. The creek behind the house, I can completely relate to that. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, was always a lot of fun. Any place I ever visited that had a creek, I was always in up to my knees in it, uh, you know, within an hour. Yeah, chasing tadpoles and stuff. You know, it's weird because I, I guess it's a mark of when you start to get older, when you're able to say things like, or when you're able to have the realization, rather, that life for you... Was, as a child was very different the, to life for kids now. Like a lot of kids that I see around don't spend near as much time outside. True. And, uh, to me, to me, that's a weird thing because I, uh, one, one thing that I never really prized as a kid that I really appreciate now is that when I was growing up as a kid, if you were, if you were not really up to trouble, you were just wandering around. And you could go pretty much anywhere and mm-hmm. do whatever, and people wouldn't. People would just tell you to leave. Oh, sure. And at most. At, in the middle of the day, you're miles from your home. Right. Yeah. yeah I, I had the same experience. And let me ask you a couple quick questions. Though, okay. And then we'll move on. From yeah, because this has so, nothing to do with no, the show. No, it, it really doesn't. Uh, well, in a roundabout way, but um, so Tennessee. Yeah. 
we talked about a creek. Mm-hmm. Did you call it creek or did you call it crick? And also, when you were catching <laughs> uh, animals in there, were you catching crayfish? Were you catching crawdads? Were you catching, uh, you know, what would you call them? Yeah, uh, well, primarily in that creek, if I remember, there were uh, tadpoles and frogs. And here's where... <laughs> Here's where you see how memory paints things, Scott, because in my head it was always a creek. My mom called it that ditch ah, <laughs> that she wanted. Uh, so it wasn't wasn't quite, you know, a rolling Mississippi River or anything. Wasn't the uh, pristine creek that we're thinking of. Right, but there were turtles in there sure. and, and you know, there would be birds, but I didn't uh, I didn't catch many crawdads. Yeah. So. No crawdads, no no uh, crayfish or mm-hmm. uh, crawdaddies? No, no, no. Uh, or, uh, one one uh fearsome uh, Ancient snapping turtle, because it must have been about, you know, more than a foot big, as which I guess means it had been alive for some time. And that was uh, that was a, a monstrous thing. You know, we were living the same eight year old life, hundreds of miles apart and really? maybe probably a decade apart. Too. But, uh, <laughs> sounds like fun. OK, so good memories. Anyways, let's take this another direction here. Uh, let's go towards our topic. How about that? Oh, yeah. Let's I'm maybe sure, do our show. Yeah, maybe listeners would appreciate that. I think at this point. so. Um, all right. Here's something we have to get out of the way first, and this mm. is uh, this isn't really related to today's topic in any way, but um, it's something that I feel we need to talk about right away. Right, because recently we had some great listener mail over on Facebook uh, from someone who checked out our, one of our uh, one of our more recent episodes. Yeah, right? a surprising person contacted us on Facebook. I was uh, shocked by this, Ben. Mm. And um, here's what happened: we recently aired our episode on Smoky Eunuch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and hopefully everybody's already listened to that one. Uh, but the very next day after that was published, I got a, a, a Facebook message from Trish Eunuch, who is Smokey Eunuch's daughter. And she contacted Carstuff and said, um, during the podcast about Smokey Eunuch, you mentioned wanting, wanting a copy of the book. I'd be happy to make that happen if you gave me the mailing address. And so I thought, well, that's really, really nice. Yeah. Now here's Trish Eunuch and I looked up who she was and, you know, where she lived and everything. And it was, it's all legit. And um, I contacted her and said, oh, that'd be fantastic. You know, here's my mailing address. And I said, I, 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 I included this note. I'm going to read through our correspondence a little bit because there's some uh, some answers here, some some further clarification on some things we talked about mm-hmm. during that podcast that I think is you know, important to get out there. So I wrote back to her and I said, that I really hope you enjoyed the podcast. And I, I sure wish we had the opportunity to meet your father because everything that we've read about him so far only deepens our interest. You know, it's uh, uh, something that uh, we found Really, really exciting to to research and and kind of dig into as a topic. Yeah. And I said I'm really looking forward to reading this book. And you know, thanks again, Trish. And she wrote back and said, "Well, thank you. I really did enjoy the podcast. That was nice. Wow, that's too kind. Thank and, you." And she said, "Here are a few answers that I posted on the Facebook page. Now, answers. She means clarification. Mm-hmm. And and right away when I read that, I thought, Oh no, we made a bunch. Oh of yeah. Mistakes. What are we What are we with on? Well, right? well, there are five points here. And the five points again aren't aren't uh, corrections really. They're they're more um, clarifications on points that we had brought up, mm-hmm. and, and a, f- a couple of silly things here. All right. All right. So the first one is uh, you remember that horse that we talked about that was always giving Smokey trouble on the farm? Yeah, giving him so much grief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. She said the horse's name was Bill. Bill. She, she said ironic that Bill was the the horse uh, the horse's name because um, uh, considering his uh, his future tangles with Bill France in NASCAR, of <laughs> right, course, you know that right. Bill. So two bills gave him a lot of trouble in the, mm-hmm. in his early life. Um, the second thing is that when we said that the uh, the truck shop portion of the the best damn garage in town closed in 1987, mm-hmm. we neglected to say that Smokey continued to work in his private portion of that shop, which was really the race shop, right? You know, the race portion of that shop, um, all the way up until the day he went to the hospital, 
Um, you know, and he was there, you know, for that, that was the last time he was there in April of 2001. So he continued to work in that shop right up into the day he was admitted into the hospital. So just then the, uh, public retail kind of end of it was closed, but he was still working assiduously in the racing portion. He's still there doing his thing, building race engines and, and consulting and doing all that. Good thing too. Yeah. Very good thing. So, so a long, long time. So that was a additional 14 years, um, after the, the, uh, the public portion shut down. Now, the third point she brings up here, we had a question about the Fiero, where the hot vapor Fiero went. And this is interesting. We'll talk about this in a moment, too. But she said the hot vapor Fiero was donated by Tony and Diane Allers to the Don Garlitz Museum of Drag Racing, where it's currently on display. Now, Ben, that's exciting for you and I, because that's only a few hours from where we are right now. Yeah. And how many times on this show and, of course, outside of this show, mm-hmm. have you and I talked about making a day trip down there to see that place because we've passed it probably 30 times each sure maybe more yeah because it's just it's on the way with the trip that's one great thing about uh any road trip you know you you pass by all these places and you file them away as you know things to go to soon but how often do you ever actually get to them i'd like to break the cycle man we should absolutely take a field trip out there i'm in complete agreement with this this plan because every time we drive down to florida there's a uh you know, a museum, well, a museum building or a big mm-hmm. sign for the museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's really, literally a stone's throw off of I-75. You can see it from I-75. You can, I'm just going to say that. You yeah, can you, see it. You can see it right there. So um, we, there's no excuse for us not to go. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations 
questions that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Number four here. Smokey never lost a driver and was very concerned about safety. He wanted to use an aviation fuel cell, but was refused by NASCAR. It was the final straw for him in leaving NASCAR. Um, remember, Fireball Roberts was injured um, uh, in a race, and we thought that that was under Smokey's direction or Smokey's as a, as a crew chief. It turns out right. that uh, Fireball was injured in a crash right after Smokey had left ah, NASCAR. okay. So, again, Smokey never lost a driver while he was a crew chief, uh, mm-hmm. you know, team owner there. Um, all right, and last point is that uh, Smokey's autobiography was not edited in any way, because I think we mentioned that he had handed over the materials to an editor but said, don't change a lot, just just make this work together. Yeah, but, don't change it. But she is saying that Smokey's autobiography was not edited in any way. He um, he formed a, a company called Carbon Press, um, exactly because he had been edited at Popular Science and Circle Track. He knew oh, he, right, where he had the columns. Yeah, exactly. So he says that he knew what he wanted to say uh, might be controversial and didn't want to be edited at all. And she also points out that the pocket edition is not abridged in any way. It's not a shorter version of the story. It just simply uh, occupies less space. It's, it's, <laughs> it has all the stories that's in the bigger volumes, but it's on a much smaller page and print size. So... Interesting to know. You can get uh, you can get the full story even in the abridged version. So that's basically about it. But I mean, there's a few more things here that I'll mention. But but that was the uh, the main points that she wanted to clarify. And hopefully everybody um, can pick that up from you know reading or listening to the uh, the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, the previous podcast. Um, I, I said you know hopefully you don't mind me reading this on air. And she said, of course you can do that. I wouldn't have done it without you know her now or her knowing of where they were mm-hmm. doing this. Um, but I thought, you know, it would be a good idea for us to kind of set the record straight on all those issues that that she had just pointed out to us. And um, <laughs> here's another thing, Ben. This is this is really important to me. This is this makes a big difference. She said, I, I said, well, I hope we didn't make too many mistakes after that, yeah. you know, after those five points. And I said, I hope, you know, it was pretty concise, you know, with, with uh, you know, the, the message that you want to get across about your father. And she said, oh, and here's what she said. She said it was the is really the cleanest piece I've ever seen or heard. No mistakes, just points I wanted to clarify. Wow. Yeah, not bad, huh? Gosh, thank you, Trish. Yeah, that was really nice. She said, and this is also important to this whole thing, she said, you see all too often how a falsehood repeated often enough becomes fact. Hmm. It's important to me to do uh, what I can to not allow that to happen to Smokey's legacy, especially with regard to cheating. And we talked about that, too, how he wasn't really cheating. He was just uh, making new rules, really. No, he, he never, that's the thing. He never cheated. He would do things that would inspire the authorities to uh, change their their rules, but he never actually broke a rule. Yes, exactly right. And that's uh, she thought that was good that we pointed that out, that we were uh, we were careful about about mentioning that. Um, she says that Don, meaning Don Garlitz and Smokey were good friends. Don puts an incredible amount of time and money and energy into the museum that he operates because he's still there operating that museum. Yeah. And she says, Don Museum is actually why Smokey left us explicit instructions on how to disperse his stuff and told us, don't make no damn shrine. <laughs> she said, it's a really, she said, it it's sounds a, like him. She said, you know, however, you know, Don's place is a really cool place to go mm-hmm. to. So, uh, you know, he didn't want the, uh, the time and the upkeep and the effort that was necessary to make a shrine to, to Smokey Eunuch the way 
Don Garlitz has done with his uh, his drag racing mm. uh, memorabilia, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, still, Don's place, I, I can't wait to go there. It's going to be so much fun. Yeah, and, it, and you know, while I understand the point of a shrine and why that does sound very much like him, the fact of the matter is that if you're a fan of racing, you're a fan of Smoky Unit. Yeah, and the very last point I'll make about this before we finally get into our topic today. <laughs> right, right. This was, a, this was really an interesting conversation with her. I had a lot of fun, you know, back and forth with her. Um I said, you know, I hope hope we get everything straight, you know, and it's all, all, all taken care of. She said, absolutely, I'd really like it if you'd do that. And she said, I just wanted people to know that Smokey's work ethic was so strong that it just killed me to think that folks might have thought that he retired after the truck shop closed, um, you know, because he did put in that additional 14 years of, of tuning and, and mm-hmm. working with customers and, mm-hmm. and really putting forth the effort that he had prior to that. It was just the public part of that shop had shut down. No, it was doing a lot more consulting, too, right? True. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so uh, I don't know. I thought that was really interesting, and I'm I'm really looking forward to reading the copy of the book that uh, hopefully is going to be arriving soon. I'm I'm truly excited about this. this. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Trish. We really appreciate it. And Ben, finally, we can move on to today's topic. Oh yes, that's right. We are doing a topic yeah. today. We've been I, I guess we spent a lot of time uh, visiting, but uh, hopefully, listeners, it was it was worth it for you. And uh, there's some cool stuff. Today's topic will. Uh, will perhaps be something you haven't heard of. We are talking about tires, but not just any tires, Scott. We're talking about a very specific, for many people, very unusual type of tire, and this comes to us through a listener suggestion. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes, Kyle, you uh, you sent a tweet our way, uh, tweeted me and said, Hey, Ben, have you seen these crazy tires before? And then uh, showed us a clip that I, I sent to you, Scott, of a vehicle with these cylindrical tires uh, that, that are huge rolling over a person, and the person is unharmed. Yeah, this is so strange when you watch this video. Um, or actually, it would be a film clip. But it's probably from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And... It really, it's going to be tough to describe this. So, so as we say with a lot of our topics, you know, you'll you'll be doing yourself a huge favor if you go out and take a look at what we're talking about. They're called, and this is a weird name, Rolligan tires. Not rolling on, R O L L I G O N. Rolligan tires. Rolligan tires, and uh, cylindrical is probably the best way to describe them. I wouldn't even call them. You know, I know they're called tires, but I would call them bags. It's yeah. almost like you're riding on big rubberized bags. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. So what what we'd like to do is first, as as you point out, Scott, listeners, please uh, take a second and check out some of the clips on YouTube where you can see these things in action. What we'll like, what we'd like to do is sort of walk through the history of their invention and then describe a little bit more about what differentiates these from, you know, the typical average tire. Yeah. What are they good for? What are they good for? What yeah. are they good for? <laughs> um, yes. So it goes all the way back to a fellow named William Hamilton Albee in 1935. William Hamilton Albee was a teacher, and he was living in a very small Inuit village uh, on near the Bering Strait. And he saw some of his friends who were villagers there uh, lifting a boat that was loaded with tons of meat, literally tons of meat. Yeah, they said like four tons of meat in these boats. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, had, they had this ingenious way of moving this. They had several... Uh, 
I guess you'd call them bottles or bags of seal skin that were sewn up and swollen under the boat. And, uh, so they're airtight. They're airtight. Yes, they're airtight, Scott, and they shoot to the top of this slope without any difficulty. Yes. Even though they're gravel, there's gravel and stone. Yeah, so, okay, here's the problem. They have to get the boats out of the water, up onto land, but in the way is a, uh, is a shoreline that is, uh, jagged, craggy with rocks. Sure, yeah. And, uh, it's a difficult surface to get over, and you hear you've got four tons of meat that you need to get up onto the, uh, the smooth, you know, the grass or the, uh, mm-hmm. the tundra area. Yeah. And these, these bags, uh, would be positioned under the bow of the boat and then, uh, you know, further back, and then right. it would be kind of rolled across these things. Mm-hmm. With them cushioning the way, almost like a like a um, like an airbag, like a, a shock yeah, absorber. Almost. Exactly. Yeah, and and the bags were heavy duty enough. You know, they were they were strong enough that uh, they weren't punctured by the rocks because you know these are sharp rocks, um, you know, craggy surfaces, as we said. You know, probably uh, something that would puncture a normal tire, but because they had uh, relatively low pressure inside them, it wasn't like yeah. they were inflated to the point where they were you know rock hard. They were soft bags. Um, it was able to absorb uh, not only the weight but also um, the, the surface that it that it was attempting to cover. So mm-hmm. you know it would roll over the rock and and no damage at all to the uh, the seal skin bag. Right, and this is a practice that has existed in this community for a very very long time, and it stays with William Albee. Yeah. Now we mentioned that this was 1935 when yeah. you saw this, right? The mid 1930s, and I believe. Uh, that they had been on a, um, a honeymoon, I think, in that area um, it, prior mm-hmm. to that. And that's how well, they kind family, of were attracted yeah. to that region. And then they went back to be become teachers. Um, but it, the idea stuck with him for 16 years before he really did anything with it. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't until 1951 uh, when William, he and his family relocated to Caramel, California. He started trying to think of a modern application or adaptation of these bags. So he started working on a nylon impregnated rubber bag. So it's super flexible, right? Mm-hmm. And he starts pitching this idea around. Uh, he ultimately talks to one of the biggest names in tires, Goodyear. Yeah. Now, this is about two years after he's kind of uh, worked on some prototypes. And right. Some, some ideas. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, he started around 1951. About 1953 um, is when they were finally mentioned in uh, Popular Science magazine. Now, I don't know if Goodyear, the Goodyear talks were happening in 1951 as well, because you know that this idea didn't just completely go out of his head for the 16 years. No, he was probably he was probably sketching some ideas, working with some different materials, probably experimenting. Yeah, yeah. you're right. It's all throughout that time. So then, you know, in the 1950s, when he got to the back to the uh, um, the, the continental U.S., the, the lower 48, he was able to uh, take this idea and then and shop it around, as you said, and, and Goodyear finally bid on the idea. Mm-hmm. Now. Um, by 1953, just two years later, or you know, right around that same time, it was appearing in things like you know, Popular Science magazine, uh, just a little, you know, a little ad on the side, and that's where um, a Jalopnik article that I saw they had a, a clipping from that Popular Science magazine, yeah, in 1953, yeah. and it shows a, uh, a jeep-bodied vehicle. Of course, it's running over uh, Mr. Albie, mm-hmm. as as are most of the promotional materials. You know, when you see a, a film clip of this. You'll see that he's being run over by just about every vehicle out there, and, and now <laughs> it's funny to see, you know, that, that it's happening. But it also really, really drives home the point that this is a, a soft material that's not going to damage the uh, the surface beneath. Um, it's strange how 
something that heavy can roll over somebody without, you know, causing any kind of bodily harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are tricks to that, too. We know, you and I know that, you know, you can kind of fake that kind of thing. Right, yeah. You can see magicians, for instance, in televised programs having a semi roll over someone, but it's all distribution of weight because the other side of the semi that you do not see has a bunch of counterbalancing weight. Sure. Yeah. And about the only thing that I can pick apart about what I've seen here, you know, like these... uh these these exhibitions where you know Mr. Alby lays down and allows the uh, you know the five ton vehicle to roll over top of him. It, it, there's really not any other trick to it other than that he's on a soft surface. I mean, if he's not he's not laying on gravel, he's not laying on um, you know a, a, a an asphalt surface. He's usually right. laying on sand or on grass, something like that. Something that's a little more forgiving. That's a good point. A little bit of cushion on his uh, on his stomach side as you know this vehicle rolls over his back, but still. The guy's got a smile on his face the whole time. It doesn't look like it hurts. In fact, I think in the article here, the uh, the Jalopnik article, they pointed out that it looks like it might actually kind of feel kind of good to have this happen to you, like a, like a back massage. Yeah, like weird back massage. Yeah. Now, the question that you were probably asking yourselves, listeners, is a very good one, which is, whoa, 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 guys, how can a tire actually go over a person without injuring them, right? It's because these have tremendously low pressure in comparison to other tires. They're, they're what's called low ground pressure tires. And they're increasing, what they're doing is they're increasing the surface area to distribute the weight of the vehicle. So the point of contact for a, a typical tire, right, is just going to be that narrow strip that actually hits the road. But in the case of these uh, Roligons, that that space is increased by the orders of magnitude. Yeah, sure. So the bag deforms as it rolls over the uh, the rough terrain beneath. Right, and that makes it even useful. That that gets us to the part, well, what is it good for, right? Yeah, sure. What is it good for? And it's good for all kinds of crazy terrain that you wouldn't be able to traverse with a normal tire, a, a standard vehicle tire. Um, and, and, you know... I, I guess we haven't even talked about the propulsion for this either, Ben. Now, now I know we're getting to the what are they good for, you know, the yeah, surfaces and things, because right. that, that's really interesting. But we haven't talked about how you get these things moving. I mean, it's not, the, the axle is simply there to uh, to allow the bag to spin around, and, and um, it's a strange design. You'll think, like, well, how is that thing moving? How is it spinning? Right. How does it connect to the engine? Yeah, where's the drive shaft? Where's, where's all that happening? Well, it turns out it's a friction drive system. So... The, the friction rollers are underneath the body of the vehicle, and they contact the top of the bag, and they, uh, through friction, move it in whichever direction you want, forward, reverse. Yeah, and here's, here's one of the things, too, because clearly this has some specialized applications. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there's not a reason for you or I or Matt or anyone, really, to buy these for their daily driver or somehow try to adapt it. It's, no. it's just impractical. This no. is for roadless terrain. This is for the rugged, jagged, remote parts of the world. And we, we know that people saw the value nearly immediately because Roligon's Tire's first big customer was Uncle Sam. Yeah, the U.S. military decided to buy into this idea and they started to equip uh, some some Jeep vehicles, mm-hmm. Dodge Power Wagons, and REO trucks, uh, four vehicles that were shipped to Korea during the mm-hmm. Korean conflict. Mm-hmm. And um, it, I think that uh, it's a, probably a, a fantastic application of this. I mean, military application is, is a great first way to kind of break into this whole thing instead of going right. straight to the civilian market. Because, honestly, we said, you know, what are they good for? And you mentioned, you know, the um, uh, the kind of rocky and, and 
difficult terrain, but sure. they're also really good for soft materials that we would normally sink into. Yes, sand. Yeah, sand is perfect for, for this. Snow. Mud. Yeah, mud. So if you're in a marshy area, you, uh-huh. can, you can traverse a swamp in these things. And, you know, as long as there's enough to grab onto. Uh, it's not, you know, just water. If it's a it's mm-hmm. marshy, uh, kind of a mucky, muddy, uh, I think they call it boot-sucking terrain. You know, like if yeah, you take one go. step and you lose a boot, um, this thing will float right over top of it. And I know there are other vehicles that, that do similar things, but this is one that can uh, kind of bridge the gap between that type of surface and a hard surface as well because it works equally well on the other. Right. The difference is that with such a wide um, a wide contact patch and, and a soft uh, contact patch, if that's the way to describe this, sure. um, you know, the way it deforms, it doesn't damage the surface beneath. It, it doesn't compact what's what's below it. So mm-hmm. even though you're in a five-ton vehicle driving over, you know, soft sand or snow, you're not leaving deep tire ruts like you would in a standard Jeep or a standard power wagon or mm-hmm. a standard REO truck or any of those. So this military application is perfect because they can go anywhere and do anything like the Jeep, you know, slogan says. <laughs> right, yes. Oh, and I forgot the, the stat, this... If you're wondering how low the pressure is, it's about 0.07 to 0.3 kilograms per centimeter squared. All right. So uh, this, this that, is that doesn't mean a whole lot to me, but you know what? You can <laughs> you can push on it and probably put your whole hand into it if you wanted to. It's a it's a very soft soft bag. What else should we talk about here? Well, you know, I would like to just mention a couple things about sure. the sand because I watched I've watched some of these uh, some of these videos, and again, I encourage our listeners to do the same thing. And what it shows is really the the military application of this. It shows mm-hmm. the military vehicles that are that are so equipped and and what they're capable of and what they do. And I think one of the most impressive parts of those of those demonstration films to me was climbing uh, loose sand dunes. Yeah, have, yeah. You, have you ever had a chance to climb a sand dune, like, I mean, a, a towering sand dune? An actual sand dune? Yeah, that's as tall as, you know, a 10-story building or something. Not a 10-story building, well, Scott. I'm have you? I, I have, but a um, yeah, long, long time ago when I was a kid. I mean, maybe even higher. I don't know. Um, Silver Lake in Michigan, there's a place called the Sleeping Bear Sand Dunes on the western side of the state. Uh-huh. And it's amazing. We, we should probably do a show on just that region and some of the vehicles that people take there, the sand buggy type vehicles. Oh, that'd be cool. The competitions they have, some mm-hmm. of the homemade vehicles that, that are allowed out there, I don't know how. Um, it, it's really pretty remarkable. I mean, going up a sand dune on foot can be tough. It is unbelievably difficult. I mean, you, you wouldn't think it, but even you look up a, a sand dune that's, that's loose, you know, it's not hard packed. Yeah. It takes you a long, long You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. 
because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Time to get up there because you take it's like uh, you take two steps forward and you go back one and a half steps. At least it's uh, difficult if you're not in a Rolligan vehicle. Yes, Rolligan yes, vehicle. because it climbs it with ease, and I mean it really does climb with ease. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, you know, kick the material up like a sand buggy would, you know, where it's paddling through the material. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not something that requires a, uh, a huge, fast burst of speed in order to get the hill. You can just slowly climb this uh, this loose sand hill, and I think they said it was thirty percent grade, mm-hmm. um, so that's very very steep. Uh, same with uh, with descent. You know, you can also descend uh, the the sand dune at the same speed. You know, nice and slow. Uh, no material is dispersed. You're not making deep ruts. You're not um, you know working against yourself the whole time. It's it's really remarkable to watch this thing in action. I, I truly don't know why more sand buggy type vehicles today don't use this type of design. Right. We we also should talk about the evolution of the company because although this is a brilliant design. There are a few difficulties or obstacles the the company faces after its formation in 1951. What they find is that you know they're selling a very specialized product, and people are not buying them you know every year all the time. So eventually, financially, it becomes kind of difficult, and the company is purchased in 1960. Yeah, sold to a guy named John um, Hollard, and uh, Hollard I guess moved the operation to Houston, Texas. Uh, and they had decided that, you know, these tires are just too expensive to make. I mean, they're, they're very costly to manufacture and, um, not, not a widely used product. I mean, the, right. uh, the consumer market for it is, is almost none. And the, uh, the military contracts, you know, that's fine, but there weren't enough of those coming in. There wasn't enough, right. um, you know, product being shipped out. You had to rely on more than just that. So, um, there, there's a few other twists and turns in this, right? I think it moves around Texas a few times. Right. But the company is bought and sold a few different times uh, within the 1960s even. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's go up to the 70s here. Uh, they're, they're still building stuff and studying the entire time, right? Like in, in the 60s, they study how fixing a tire on the axis uh, can make it can make it become powered, and they adopt an articulated chassis when they create the 4450. Ah, so so this is a uh, a new suspension system. Right, yeah. Okay. Lightweight, super mobile, amphibious, uh, ground pressure 0.15 kilograms per centimeter squared, uh, and then 
they they continue working on these and they their ranges go up as high as from a 6x6 to a 14x14. So these they're they're starting to build these large specialized vehicles which spoiler alert you can still purchase if you have if you have the interest in the overhead, right? Sure. Uh, so anyway, where were we? The 70s. Uh, in the early 70s, there's a joint venture with the Bechtel Corporation in San Francisco. And so they make uh, 12x12. So this would be an 8x8 tractor with a 4x4 trailer. And they have those slick tires that are driven by the rollers, right? And these are... Uh, these these were still in use uh, for, for a long time afterwards... Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, Albie, William Hamilton Albie has a son, William Albie Jr., and he was the driver of the first prototypes of these. Hmm. Interesting. So he's in some of the, the early photos that have, I think, is just one big wheel, wasn't it? It looks almost like a, uh, you know, a homemade cart that they made in the garage or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Welded together, uh, prototype. But it, but it clearly got across the point that uh, this is something that's viable, something that's possible. And the oil industry and oil exploration industry really starts to like these. Oh, I bet because they're able to get out into the tundra areas, the marshy areas, the, mm-hmm. the areas that were, uh, you know, previously inaccessible. Yeah. Now they're able to get out there with the uh, the equipment that they need to in order to start the uh, the exploratory mm-hmm. process of, of searching for oil without have without damaging the tundra soil which is pretty sensitive and uh without always puncturing something on a rock and getting stuck uh, mm-hmm. cuz you know you get out in these remote regions yeah. and you need uh two other vehicles to pull you out of that uh, <laughs> that area right. and then in the meantime you know those two vehicles get stuck and then you have to send for somebody to come from back at camp you know it, it becomes a, a very difficult thing mm-hmm. uh that just simply didn't happen with these vehicles and and I I can see why a corporation like somebody who's doing this oil exploration, uh, you know, this research, this uh, surveying, would have an interest in something like this. And of course, the military. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me as well. Sure. Um, some of the other companies that might make sense would be, um, you know, architects and land developers, and uh, you know, people that need to get kind of an early view of a of a region uh, before there are roads there, really. Before you know, you can uh, easily get a standard vehicle out into that that part of the world. Right, and so if we continue following this up toward the present day, uh, we see that they do get these big contracts from around the world. Uh, China, in 1978, has an order where they want 75 different models over five years. Uh, in 1959, the corporation uh, starts to produce and sell equipment exclusively for oil production, things like mixers, uh, the stuff that can haul the electronics associated with wells and pumps and piping. And following along this timeline, in 1999, the corporation starts to produce and sell equipment just for oil production. So mixers, pumps, piping, uh, electronics for wells, and it still needs to expand. So in 2002, the guy who owns the place at that time, a fellow named Mike Deering, uh, does what, what you were alluding to earlier, Scott. He says, let's move from Houston, where the fees are getting kind of expensive, mm-hmm. to a place called Anderson, Texas. Yeah. And then its clients become places like Halliburton, Schlumberger, uh, companies from Russia and South America and the Middle East. Remember when I said earlier that you can buy one of these vehicles? Yes. Okay. Well, in 2002, the average price was 750 
thousand dollars. Oh my God! Well, okay. You know why it's seven hundred fifty thousand? Is because it's used on these massive pieces of equipment that are very specialized. Right. And so it's not like you can go out and buy a doom buggy that has these on it. You know, something <laughs> that you know would be in, uh, I guess the uh, the our, our mortal price range. <laughs> our mortal price range. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> my question would be like, well, is there uh, a used model? Or you guys take trade-ins? Anything civilian, please. Anything <laughs> at all. Anything that you can do to to my Honda Civic. Can you do anything to that? Mm-hmm. What about uh, what about this Subaru? Can you make it even even more adept to driving through the marsh? Because I need to drive through the marsh in my STI. Right, right. Like uh, you know, I love my Ford one fifty. I would like it more if I didn't need the roads at all. <laughs> Something like that. And you know what? I, I would bet. I would bet that there's probably a conversion out there. There's probably a kit somewhere that you could somehow adapt to this. But when you look at what it is, really, I mean, it, it's it, the suspension is nothing more than uh, a, a thing that holds the bag in place. I mean, right. the, the axle, I should say. The suspension is something different, but um, the axle is really nothing more that holds that. It, it, you've got to incorporate all that other stuff, the friction drive, um, you know, that specialty suspension that we just mentioned, you know, that goes along with the system. Um, it's not just a matter of, you know, replacing your, your car or truck tires with these these uh, these balloon tires. It's, it's, right. it's different than that. It's a, it's a very different system. Yeah. Well, we'll say at this point... Uh, William H. Albee, William Hamilton Albee Sr., the original one, uh, he passes away in 2009. Yeah, wasn't he very, very old when he, he passed away? He was 102 years old, Not Scott. bad. Good for him. That's amazing. 102 years old. Yeah, Man, that, that is... Interesting life, too. That was amazing, yeah. And as far as we could find, he spent uh, the bulk of that time after about the 50s working on constantly refining uh, these concepts. Hmm, interesting. And so with that, our story ends. Uh, you can, of course, find Rolligan vehicles uh, or things like that around the world. And we would love to see some pictures or especially if you have experience driving one, because I want to know about the handling on yeah, these. You know, I just think that with the, the, the reach that we have with our podcast now, I think that there's got to be somebody out there that either has a, a you know some kind of firsthand knowledge of this through the military applications mm-hmm. or through... Um, uh, heck, even like an, an Arctic expedition that used them on, you know, ice surfaces or something like that. Yeah. I would be fascinated to hear how it's like, or hear what it's like to drive one of these. Because it's mm-hmm. got to be a strange feeling. Yeah, I imagine so. Uh, I'm still, okay, intellectually, Scott, I know it's fine if I lay down and one of those rolls over me. Mm-hmm. I would like to try it, but just on an emotional level, like instinctively, I'm still... Not a hundred percent. Yeah, that first time would be a little rough, wouldn't it? Now imagine him. He's, I mean, he's putting his life on the line, thinking that you know this should work. <laughs> this, this really should, but uh, maybe you test it out with uh, you know a sack of potatoes first. Sure. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Just see how the potatoes fare first, and then uh, maybe I'll do it myself. The old sack of potatoes test. <laughs> well, on that note, it is time for us to head out. Uh, we're going to go have some further adventures. We hope you are having adventures as well. And if you are, we'd love to hear about them. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. Scott and I are Car Stuff HSW at both of those. Uh, and we take suggestions for both of those, uh, which is why, you know, you, our suggestion for today's episode came from a tweet. Uh, special thanks to Trish so much for writing in. Looking forward to reading that book. Yes. And uh, if you have something you'd like to send us or a question you'd like to ask, a topic, um, I don't, a limerick if you want, but, you know, keep it kind of clean. Oh, boy. You, you ask for limericks all the time. You know how many limericks we've received? Zero. Counting, let's see, counting the ones we got last week. 
plus the ones the previous month. Oh, man. Still zero. It's still zero. Okay. All right. Yeah. But you know what? I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that someday <laughs> we're going to get one, and it, maybe it'll be clean enough that we can read it on air. You know, hope springs eternal, Scott. Yeah, limericks usually don't go the clean direction. No, not in my experience, but <laughs> not the good ones. But uh, but if you if you would like to write in, and again, this is a listener-driven show, all of our best ideas come from you, uh, go ahead and take a page from Kyle and Trish's book. You can send us an email directly. We are carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fairs. Discover more at Viking.com. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get started.